Good afternoon. Welcome back from lunch. What a beautiful day to worship the Lord. Let's turn, if you would, please, in your Trinity uh, hymn books to hymn number 415, God Be Merciful, Merciful to Me. Hymn 415. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful afternoon in which we have gathered to proclaim your truth, to sing hymns to your praise, and to hear the message um, that you have for us this afternoon. So, Father, we do ask uh, that you would bless Micah Smith from Maple Avenue Bible Church, uh, that he would be filled with the Spirit this afternoon, and that he would proclaim boldly your truth. May we be attentive in our listening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn, please, to Psalm 106 in our consecutive reading of the Psalms. Psalm 106. Now, I have a confession to make about something I said this morning, and 
you, you are all so sharp that you probably all caught it and are wanting to maybe know what I was talking about. Well, um, I was talking about Revelation chapter 9. And I had made the comment, and I'll tell you why I said it, that that chapter was a chapter of light compared to the preceding chapter. And I think I might have even said 105, which was a chapter of darkness. I have my notes. I sometimes go by little sticky notes. Not often, but this time I did. And I read it unthinkingly. And, but it was referring, it wasn't not true, but it was referring to Psalm 106. And so I hope you forgive me for that, and, and we'll try and be more careful in the future. But, uh, yeah, I got back to my seat, and I, stand there, I sat there, and I, I just kind of felt humiliated for a minute that I had done that. And, and, uh, but at the same time, I kind of giggled, because sometimes that happens. But... Uh, in, the, in any case, Psalm 106, this is a uh, psalm of light. Uh, it talks about Israel's rebelliousness and the Lord's deliverances. Psalm 105 was a, a more of a, a dark psalm because that was speaking of uh, the Lord being angered again by the Israelites. And, uh, and, and so we see here in this psalm, uh, the Lord's patient deliverance. The British Old Testament scholar, his name is Derek Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R. He writes of Psalm 106, this psalm is the dark counter, counterpart of its predecessor, a shadow cast by human self-will in its long struggle against the light. This psalm speaks of the Lord's mercy to his covenant people. And so that's the light of this psalm. Verse 1, 106, this is a rather long psalm, so I, I won't uh, be stopping to make comment. Verse 1, praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or show forth all his praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up. And he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries and not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. And when they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abiram. And fire blazed up in their company. The flame consumed the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot the God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. And therefore he said to him, said that he would destroy them had not Moses chosen one stood on the stood, 
If not had Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. And therefore he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness and that he would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and interposed and so the plague was stayed and it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. They provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account, because they were rebellious against his spirit. He spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled among the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. Then every sac- they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. And therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, let's turn, if you would, please, to your hymns of grace. Hymns of grace, number 177, in Christ alone. Let us stand.
Good afternoon. Can all certainly say amen to that song, can't we? And that's actually an interesting segue into the sermon this afternoon. No power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And therefore, we have no guilt in life and no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. Let's pray before we begin. Father in heaven, we uh, gather here today on your Sabbath, your day of rest for your people to worship your name. You are the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, and you in your son, the Lord Jesus, are also the redeemer of all things, and especially the redeemer of your people. We worship you with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, and all our strengths today. Give us clear minds as we look into your word. Give us receptive hearts. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We know that all these things are gifts of your mercy. We're totally reliant upon you. Please bless the reading and the preaching and the singing and the praying of your word this afternoon. Pray these things in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, that's going to be our text for today. And from time to time, I get the privilege of addressing different congregations with God's Word, whether it's my home congregation at Maple Avenue or I preached once at Gateway Community Church in Onstead, and today I'm here. And being able to herald the Word of God is the deepest privilege of my life. And um, I I can't adequately express to you how thankful I am for you guys uh, allowing me to come and share God's word with you. And today, the reason that that song was an interesting segue into the message is because we're going to be thinking from Hebrews chapter 6 about the topic of assurance, assurance of salvation. And how many of you in this room, at some point in your Christian life, maybe it was early on, or maybe... It was, even after you'd matured in Christ, have come to the place where you doubted your own salvation. I think that this is a pretty common experience in the Christian life. It's also an experience that no one really likes to talk about. I had this experience early on in my Christian walk, and it's it's miserable. And it's miserable because it tends to snowball into other things. When you doubt your position in Christ, when you doubt that God's promises apply to you, when you doubt that the promises of God in Christ are yours, you tend to feel as if your communion with God has been cut off. And when your communion with God has been cut off, it becomes very hard to live the obedient lives that the Lord calls us to live. It becomes very hard to worship the Lord like we're called to worship him. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our soul, all our mind, all our hearts, and all of our strength. But when you doubt your position in Christ and Christ's power to save you, that becomes incredibly difficult. And it can also, on the back end, lead to all kinds of disobedience in our lives. And it's because, that I, it's because I know this problem personally because I've had some sort of experience with it in my own life, that I came to the point where I had to say, there's got to be some sort of an antidote. There's got to be some sort of a, a, of a fix or some sort of a solution in God's word that helps me overcome doubts about my own salvation. And that's actually what we're going to look at in our text today. Because the opposite of doubt is assurance and hope. And in verse 11 of Hebrews 6, chapter 9, or Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 30, the writer says that he wants them to have the full assurance of hope. 
until the end. So the opposite of doubting our salvation is assurance and hope of the promises of God that are in Christ. If someone were to ask you what the definition of assurance in the Christian life is, what would your answer be? I think from my study of this passage, I would give this answer. Assurance is the bedrock certainty of your position in Christ and of your inheritance of the promises of God. Let me, re- let me repeat that. Assurance is the bedrock certainty of your position in Christ and your inheritance of the promises of God. If you know your Bible, you know that there are very few passages in Scripture that have been as hotly debated or have been the source of as much anguish in the souls of Christians as, the ch- as this chapter in the book of Hebrews that we're approaching this morning. The entire book of Hebrews essentially has one main theme, and that theme is that Jesus is better. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke or was speaking through, in all these different ways, right? Through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken. There's finality. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. He has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. Chapter 1, verse 4 through chapter 2, explains that Jesus is far superior to angels. Chapter 3, verse 2, explains that Jesus is superior to Moses. Chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus brings us into an eternal rest that Joshua could never have even imagined. Chapter 4, verses 14 and through into chapter 5, says that Jesus is a better high priest than the sons of Levi because the Levitical priests had to go into the Holy of Holies time after time, year after year, and Jesus has entered into the holiest place once on our behalf and will never leave. So, but along with all of these statements that explain and exalt the superiority of Christ to the Old Covenant, there are also several warnings that are interspersed throughout the beginning portion of the book. And the reason that this text in Hebrews 6, the first eight verses that we aren't going to look at today, the, first, the reason that the first eight verses of this text are so hotly debated is because this is actually the warning of all warnings. The, the warnings that take place through the beginning chapters of the book actually reach their boiling point in the beginning of chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 8 just to set the background for what we look at today. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance." since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And now our text in verses 9 through 20. Though we speak in this way, beloved. So even though I've given you this warning, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. 
And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we start out in verse 9, and he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So after the warning, you can see how warning and encouragement go together in this book. But after the warning, he sort of puts the brakes on. He turns a corner and he seeks to encourage his audience. The author feels sure of better things concerning them. So what are the better things that he feels sure of concerning them? Well, he feels sure of the opposite of all the things that he just warned them about in the last passage. He, so instead of crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt, he feels sure that they're pressing fully into Christ. He feels sure that they're exalting Christ. Instead of bearing thorns and thistles, he feels sure that they're producing useful fruit. Instead of being cursed, he's sure that they'll be eternally blessed. And instead of their end to be burned, he feels sure that they will receive eternal life. So these are the things that the author is convinced of for this congregation. But why? That's the question. And I think in asking that question, we find, we find some of the grounds of our assurance of salvation. Because that's what this author is trying to do now. He's trying to assure them of the promises of God. Verse 10, we see the why. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So here we see our first foundation of assurance, and this is probably the most popular one to talk about. In fact, it's, it's usually the one, it's usually when you're dealing with the concept of assurance, I usually pe hear people talk about this one. And it's plainly biblical. So, I mean, it's good that people talk about it. The writer has assurance of the salvation of the members of this congregation because of the fruit that's being born in their lives. Through their lives, they prove to be the kind of people that chapter 6, verse 7 talks about. What did chapter 6, verse 7 say? For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So... Chapter 6, verse 7, he's drawing, he's drawing a picture of the fruit-bearing life. And this picture that he's drawing actually harkens back to the words of Jesus. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, he explains the different, the different soils and the different seeds. And he explains that in the good soil, the seed is planted and the roots, take the, you know, the roots go deep and it produces fruit and the fruit abides. But in the rocky soil, the roots have, no, the roots have no, uh, no depth of soil in them, so they spring up and then the sun scorches them. And he likens these things to the trials of life. He's explaining that in the Christian life, or in the life of people who have professed faith in Christ, the fact of the matter is their fruit shows what kind of soil they are. And the author feels sure of, feels sure of this congregation, feels, has assurance that they belong to Christ 
because of three things. And these, these things are the fruit in their lives. Uh, and these things are found in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So their work, their love, and their service. And it's important also to understand that the kind of holiness of life that the author is talking about here is not just sitting on the couch and trying to restrain the evil in their own hearts. Of course, we are supposed to restrain evil in, in obedience to Christ. But this fruit bearing that the author is talking about that gives him assurance that these people actually belong to the Lord that he's writing to, this fruit bearing works its way out in the form of a mission. Your work and your love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So what is the mission that they're on? This is this kind of holiness that's being produced in their lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit is a body-centered holiness. These are people who have a passion for serving the bride of Christ. And, that, and that's why, actually, this is one of, the, uh, one of the foundations of assurance. Because if you show me somebody who loves Christ's bride, who wants to serve Christ's bride, I'll show you somebody who loves Christ himself. And then the opposite of that is also true. People who don't love Christ's bride, it's evidence that they don't love Christ. And their work and their service are actually produced by their love for his name. And this also, this also goes back to the parable that, that the Lord gave in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, because he says, he says at the end of verse 10, as you still do. So this isn't fruit that sprang up for a while. This wasn't like they, they did these things for a few months. They loved Christ's name. They loved the church. They served each other, and then they stopped doing it. No, this is a, con- this is a consistent and continual pattern of life for them. The word, and the words, as you still do, show that. And this is fruit that also had been tested. If you know anything about the audience, to this, the, the audience that this letter was written to, you know that it was written to a church that was in the fire of persecution. Some people in this congregation might have even lost, lost their heads for the sake of Jesus' name. And this foundation of assurance also mimics what the entire book of 1 John was about. Turn to 1 John 1, 5 through 7. First, 1 John 1, 5 through 7 says, This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the fact that the author feels assured of the salvation of this church, the fact that he feels assured of that based on the, the fruit that they have borne in their walk with Christ, it mirrors what is said in other texts of Scripture. It mirrors the theme of the entire book of 1 John. So the point is essentially this. Fruit-bearing in the Christian life is a foundation of assurance. The whole point of John's letter uh, in 1 John is to explain to them that if you are bearing these kinds of fruit, this is evidence that you know him. But if you're doubting your salvation and you take it to somebody and, and you, you want to be counseled about it, some people, when they're trying to convince you to have assurance of your place in Christ, they'll stop there. They'll stop at fruit bearing. They'll stop at obedience. They'll say, look at your obedience. Look at your fruit. Look at, look at the course of your life. But here's the thing. If you, 
if, you're, if you are having those kinds of lack of assurance, and then you lay down at night, and all you can do is count and inspect your fruit and your obedience, then what are you going to find? I'm going to find sin. And then I'm going to dig deeper, and I'm going to find more sin. So even my obedience is deeply imperfect. It's real. It's produced by the Holy Spirit, but it's not perfect. And it won't be perfected until I see the Lord and stand in His presence. But that's the problem if we base all of our assurance on this first foundation without looking at the rest of what Scripture has to say. If we base all of our assurance on our performance, if all we can do is count our obedience, then we're never going to make it to a place where we have certainty that the promises of God are ours in Christ. It ha- looking at the course of our lives has to be an element of it, but it can never be the most foundational thing. So that's why we have to go deeper, and that's why I think the, the, the author to the uh, Hebrew churches penned verses 13 through 20. But verses 11 and 12 say, And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So in verses 11 and 12, we see a transition happening. He goes from speaking generally to the beloved, that's his, that's his title to the church as a whole, to speaking more specifically to each one of you. He narrows his focus, and he aims his message at the hearts of individuals. And he also begins to transition away from focusing on their work to something that is actually much more foundational than their work, than their fruit bearing. And, it's, and it is more foundational because it actually produces the kind of work and service that he already mentions in our first foundation. Look at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you to show the, full, uh, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And then in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So them showing earnestness to have the full assurance of hope actually produces the kind of fruit bearing that he was talking about in verses 9 and 10. We can't get the cart ahead of the horse here. So what is the author encouraging them to do when he says, have, show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end? He's encouraging them to do the same thing that he's been encouraging them to do so far through the entire letter. He's encouraging them to press into the promises of God in Christ. To have assurance, according to the author, is to be assured that the promises of God cannot fail. The author uses Abraham as an example of the earnestness to have the full assurance of hope in those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's encouraging them to have the full assurance, to press fully into Christ, to take hold fully of the hope that is theirs in Christ. And he uses Abraham as an example and how Abraham clung to the promises of God and was assured that they would be accomplished. Let's read verses 13 through 18 together. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This is the primary portion of this section of scripture where we see that the promises of God are the sure foundation of our assurance of salvation. Verse 18, I think, gives us really a quick synopsis of the whole point of this section of verses. Verse, eight, verse eight, 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So what are these two unchangeable things? The author mentions two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now, it is impossible for God to lie. Amen? God is the eternally truthful one. But the author mentions two things that assure you that God cannot lie. And what are they? They're in verse 17. Verse 17, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, and he guaranteed it with an oath. So, the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie are his unchangeable purpose and the oath that he swore to Abraham. Now, all of God's purposes are unchangeable. Amen? God's purposes in history and in salvation, including the salvation of individuals, will absolutely be accomplished without fail, right? In Isaiah 46, verses 8 through, 12, 8 through 10, uh, talks about the, un, you know, the unchanging purposes or unfailing purposes of God. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So all of God's purposes are unchangeable, but his unchangeable purpose with regard to Abraham is what? It's the fact that God determined to bless the entire world through the line of Abraham in Genesis 12 and to make Abraham into a multitude of nations as many as as many descendants as the stars of the heavens and if we dig into the passages in the book of Genesis about the Abrahamic covenant we see that the oath that is mentioned in our text doesn't actually even happen until chapter 22 and God's first promise to Abraham was in chapter 12 where he promised that all the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 12. Or Genesis, yeah, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in Genesis chapter 12, we see God's unchangeable purpose for his people, specifically for Abraham. And the reason, the reason that this is used as part of a text that's encouraging them to have the full assurance of hope is, is because this is a sovereign covenant. God's words to Abraham reflect his singular action over and over again. He's, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. This wasn't Abraham's commitment to keep covenant with the Lord. This is the Lord's singular purpose to keep covenant with Abraham and to bless the nations through the line of Abraham. And this in itself gives us assurance because this shows that God's unchangeable purpose isn't dependent on our actions. It wasn't dependent on Abraham's actions and it's not ultimately dependent on your actions either or my actions. It's dependent on his will alone. Abraham couldn't have done anything to thwart God's will in this covenant. And if you need proof of that, he actually tries at one point. Look at Hagar. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Hagar? Abraham doesn't believe the promises of God, isn't clinging to the promises of God, and instead goes in to his wife's maidservant and has a son, Ishmael, by her. That didn't change God's eternal purpose with regard to Abraham, did it? So Abraham's disobedience and Abraham's actions, Abraham's failure to keep the covenant, didn't change the eternal, unchanging purpose of God. God is the one who has determined to act in his covenant, both in his covenant with Abraham and in your salvation. 
And that should give you, or that should show you, that no matter how imperfect your obedience is, you will never find yourself under God's wrath. Remember I said that if, if we're trying to build assurance in ourselves, simply counting our obedience, what will we find? We'll find more and more sin. But what this, what, what this unchangeable purpose for Abraham shows us is that even in the midst of Abraham's disobedience, that didn't change God's covenant with him. That didn't change the unshakability of God's promise. God's promise to Abraham was invincible. And so is God's promise to you in Christ. And that's why this unchangeable purpose gives us assurance. But it didn't even stop there. It didn't even stop with God's unchangeable purpose. Because even though in the eternal counsel of God's will, all these promises to his people were never uncertain, just so you and I and Abraham could have even greater certainty of them, he condescended to us and bound himself to us with an oath. And this is the oath taken by the Lord in chapter 22 of Genesis. And in this oath, God swears by himself. Check out verse 13. For God made a promise to Abraham, and since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So what does this mean? It means that we can be certain that God will keep his promises, not only because, we ha- because he has an unchangeable purpose for his people, but in order to give even more comfort to his people, in order to give even greater assurance, he has bound his very self to this covenant. He has bound his own unchanging nature to his word to Abraham. His very eternal and infinite life, his own name, he is bound to his promise to Abraham. So it's, it's almost as if, as if his unchanging purpose in this covenant weren't enough. He condescends to bind himself to Abraham in an oath, saying that he swears by himself that he will accomplish everything that he's promised to Abraham. So these are the two unshakable things in which we can have confidence that it's impossible for God to lie. But in this text, we also see that the author makes a transition. The author transitioned from Abraham's patience and Abraham's faith in the promises of God to ours. And this is, and this is I think, the beautiful way that this text applies to us. Because God's, uh, what God's unchangeable purpose and what he bound himself to do in an oath to Abraham, we actually receive the blessings of along with Abraham. So God's promises to Abraham weren't just promises to Abraham. We are, in verse 17, the heirs of the promise. God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So those who are trusting in the one who came from the line of Abraham to bring salvation to all the nations take part in the blessings of what God promised to Abraham. And let's back up for a second. What were the things that God promised to do for Abraham? God promised to make him a blessing to all the nations. He promised to bless the entire world through Abraham's line. And he promised to give Abraham as many descendants as the stars in the heavens. And the reason that we can have confidence in this promise and how this promise connects to the unchangeable purposes of God is because is because of what he, uh, Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, excuse me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So God's promise to Abraham to make him the father of a multitude of nations, to have as many descendants as the stars of the heavens, is actually a flesh and blood, time and space 
reflection of an eternal purpose. God's promise of a multitude of descendants to Abraham was a reflection of the promise of the Father to the Son to give the entire world, the entire universe to him. God gave, the, the Father gave a people to the Son. And this people that the Father gave to the Son in eternity past, the elect of God, those predestined to be sons, sons and daughters of God, are the heirs, the multitude of heirs that were promised to Abraham. This is, in verse 18, we who have fled for refuge, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Well, we who have fled for refuge, to who? To the one who came from Abraham's line to bless the nations. God's eternal purpose that he made known to Abraham in Genesis 22 was a hope that Abraham saw, but he only saw it in the distance. He clung to it with faith and patience and assurance, but he didn't receive the immediate fulfillment of it. He only saw it partially in the birth of Isaac. God promised Abraham innumerable descendants, but Abraham only saw one. Abraham only saw Isaac. He only saw the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises. Later on in Hebrews, it talks about how all these saints of the past were desiring a better country, a heavenly one. They understood that there was something more to the promises of God than they could see right in front of them. But what Abraham saw as far off has come near to us. And that's why we can have great encouragement, why we can have great assurance because what Abraham saw as far off has to us he's the one who he's the one who took on flesh the one who is hope who is our assurance himself took on flesh and this is the final foundation of our assurance it's the work of Christ verses 19 and 20 we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the foundation number three, the work of Christ, and foundation number two, the promises of God, are actually one and the same because Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Because Jesus is the fulfillment and the apex of God's unchangeable purpose, and his oath, his covenant, the hope that we have in him is sure. It's a steadfast anchor in verse, in verse uh, 19. And the writer actually uses the word hope as a synonym for Jesus' name in, chapter, in verse 19 as well. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I think that we tend to use the word hope in kind of a flimsy way in our lives. I may hope that I get a good grade on an assignment in school. I may hope that I have tacos for dinner tonight. But hope, in the biblical sense, is not like any of those things that we say that we hope for. Hope, in the biblical sense, is not a, a wish thrown out into space. Hope, in the biblical sense, is very similar to assurance. In the biblical sense, it's bedrock certainty. Jesus is the full, final, and sure hope for the people of God. He's a hope that's likened to an anchor that holds down a boat when the wind and the waves crash against it. And this is why Jesus, Jesus himself, is our only anchor. He's our only anchor to safeguard against the wind and the waves of doubt that crash over believers from time to time. He's a steadfast anchor because he's the one who has entered into the inner place behind the curtain. Anyone who doubts their salvation tends to feel the crushing weight of this doubt because they know that one day they're going to stand before the Lord. Isn't that one of the most awesome realities, the most weighty reality that you can think about in your life is the fact that one day you will stand before the God who created you. But when we doubt our position in Christ and we doubt... The promises that the promises of God apply to us, we end up 
we end up fearing because we know that we'll stand before him one day and we know that every single deed in our lives will be exposed to his sight. We fear that instead of being related to him as a son or a daughter, we'll be related to him as a criminal in his court. And that's why doubts, is, doubts about salvation, that's why a lack of assurance of salvation is so crushing in the Christian life. Because I'm doubting that God's verdict is innocent in Christ. I'm doubting my adoption as a son of God in Christ. And this is a fear that's actually expounded in Psalm 24, I think. Psalm chapter 24. Starting in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, nor does, and, and does not swear deceitfully. So in Scripture, the hill of the Lord or the mountain of God is the place of God's presence. It's the place where God dwells with his people. So when I, when I fear coming into the presence of the Lord because of my own sin, I'm essentially fearing because my hands are dirty. My heart is not clean. Or I, I, when I look at my own obedience in my own Christian life, I see sin. But the fact of the matter is we have a great high priest who has ascended the hill of the Lord for us. We have a great high priest who is the fulfillment of, what, of that psalm, of Psalm chapter 24. He's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. He is the one who has ascended the mountain of God on our behalf. And if you've trusted in Christ, do you want to know why you never have to fear standing in his presence? Because your Jesus has entered into the inner place behind the curtain. That he has entered into the heavenly holy of holies. He is the one who's ascended the hill of the Lord. He stands in that holy place for you. The Levitical priests had to enter into that place in the temple over and over again. They had to go in there year after year, and they had to bring blood with them, the blood of bulls and the blood of goats. But Scripture tells us that the blood of bulls and goats that they had to go offer repeatedly could never take away sins. Those priests could never bring full, final assurance to God's people. Those priests could only remind God's people that the work still wasn't finished. But the fact of the matter is that our great high priest is the one that is the one who said it is finished. The entire people of God have been purchased eternally because of our great high priest who instead of making one instead of making sacrifices for sin over and over and over again made one sacrifice for sin. And that sacrifice for sin was the perfect giving of his own life. We draw near to God with full assurance of hope because Jesus has ascended into the presence of God on our behalf as the one who stands there in our place. He stands there in our place as the one who lived sinlessly for you, as the one who died to purchase your soul, and as the one who rose again showing that the curse of your sin had been conquered. And we can have assurance because Christ, who is our righteousness, is in heaven at the right hand of God. He is forever before his Father's face as the one who is our righteousness. And not only has he entered into that place, but the truth is he remains there forever as the risen one and as our great high priest. And assurance is really just like everything else in our Christian life. It's built on the deepest foundation of it is not our works but it's the gospel. The simple truth and the profound grace that Jesus is mighty to save and that Jesus cannot fail to save those that he died for. His purchase is perfect. His high priestly work at the right hand of God is perfect. His intercession is perfect. So, if you're here today, you find yourself doubting your own salvation, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And 
then as you drink deeply from the wells of God's grace that are in Christ, as you meditate on Christ and you see the perfection of his work in your place, then assurance of Christ himself will become assurance of your salvation. That's the deepest foundation of our assurance. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the perfect work of your Son. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word proclaims the work of your Son so consistently from beginning to end. We thank you for our place in him. We thank you for our assurance that we can have because of his perfection. He's the one who stands before you with clean hands and a pure heart as the perfect one and as the one who became sin for us on that cross and rose again three days later. We thank you that he is exalted to your right hand. We thank you that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that one day he's returning to make all things new. We thank you for this this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Micah. <clears throat> the message kind of reminded me a little bit of what I have been talking about in the past here. Um, Matthew 11:12. He mentioned pressing into the promises of Christ. He mentioned pressing into Christ, holding fast. In Matthew 11:12, if you recall, it says, "The kingdom of heaven suffers violence." And violent men take it by force. Or they are pressing their way into the kingdom. Again, for that full assurance of hope. Let's uh, close by turning in your hymns of grace. Hymn number 364. 364 in the hymns of grace. How, how firm a foundation. Let us stand.
You are dismissed.